If you have a Bible or an app, please open to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where you just heard the passage that Warren read for us, and I'm so grateful for him and the fact that we get to hear that passage. So often, this passage is heard in the terms of a wedding, and perhaps you had it in your own wedding as a guy that performs many weddings. I'm very familiar with the passage in that setting. Unfortunately, we may do this passage a disservice in the context of only having a wedding because we start to think that it's only a wedding passage. It's only a wedding scripture. It goes nice on a card. And today, I'm going to challenge us all to try to redeem it from just the wedding. It's totally appropriate at a wedding. I'm definitely not for that. I'm not against that. But... Someday we're going to get a real preacher at this church. Yeah. I mean, okay, I've been waiting for an amen for a long time, and that's what I get an amen on. Oh. I just want to talk to our online crowd for a second how much I appreciate you. This passage is going to be redeemed because the proper context for it, or the the highest priority of a context for it, I should say, is not in a wedding, but in the church. And in the local body of Christ, and that's why we're calling this whole series The Beginner's Guide to Church, because Paul is going to take us back to basics today. He is going to challenge us, and so the challenge for us is to hear this passage with fresh ears to receive it once again. And I'm going to tell you, if we can do that, it's not going to be easy. This is a passage that starts to step on our toes. I share, or oftentimes I'll get done with a sermon, and somebody will come up to me and say, you were preaching right to me today, how did you know? Well... My confession this morning is, I've had to live with this scripture for a while now, preparing for today, and each time it was preaching right to me. And so even this week, as I would have interactions that I'm not proud of with my family, realizing that I'm about to have to preach a passage that says, love is kind. Love is patient and realizing in a very tangible way that love may be that way, but I wasn't. And so, if you're willing to go on this journey with me, we're going to dive in and we're going to let this work on us today. Because again, a beginner's guide means we're all starting from square one. We're all starting from the beginning, and we're going to learn what this means. And here's why I'm so excited about today. is because if we can be a people, if we can be a group of people, a congregation or a church, however you want to define this gathering here, all those that are with us in this room, those that are with us online, if we can define that group, if we can be a group that embraces this, our world desperately needs people that can actually live this out. And love is a word that's thrown around in our world so casually today. 
I mean, I mean, I find myself using it casually. I love these kind of movies. I love this kind of food. I love, I love, I love. And we've got love associated with I strongly like. And that doesn't help because what God's going to describe for us today is a different definition of love. And so we're going to go through this whole chapter. You just heard the whole chapter read, and so we're going to experience the whole chapter in its entirety uh, today. And I'm going to walk you through three sections of this. And each time we come to a section, I'm going to give you a word or a phrase to write out next to that section. So I hope you're taking notes or I hope you've got a way on your app to capture this. Because if you'll let it, this will redefine how you approach this chapter. Next time you see it, next time you hear it, next time you come across it. And my encouragement is I'm going to want it to work on you this week. I, I want you to to get it kind of into the uh, cracks in your heart there and let it snuggle in and do some work on you because it will change you. So, some background first. I wanted to remind you that Corinthians is an occasional letter and it's a situational corrective letter. Meaning occasional, that it's written in a certain time, in a certain place, correctional, because it's addressing a certain problem. And we started last week in 12, and a reminder that 12, 13, and 14, he is dealing with a problem that's arose around spiritual gifts. And I encourage you to go back, listen to last week, because it's a great setup for this week, and understanding what he's doing with the spiritual gifts. But in the middle of this, he puts this chapter that we famously and correctly refer to it as the love chapter. It's a very famous chapter in all of Scripture. Maybe one of the most famous chapters in all of, all of the Bible, especially the New Testament. And what he does is he now gives a framework. But understand, it's because there's a problem that's come along in their exercise of the spiritual gifts. And so to set up some of this background, let me remind you some of the geography that we're dealing with. So once again, here's a map. We've seen this map before. This is ancient Greece. Corinth is the city where this is written to, where there's a church. Remember, Corinth is a city with not one port, but two ports, because it sits on this very narrow landmass, this isthmus. And there's a port on both sides, and ships would sail up to one port. They would actually offload the cargo. They would take it four miles across a road that they had set up and load other ships, the cargo back on the ships again, and that way the ship and the cargo could avoid the treacherous seas. And so it is a port city with people that pull into the port. It's, it's a major trade route. A ma everything that shipped would go through Corinth. Near Corinth, on the route, is this other city up here called Delphi. And at Delphi, they've done some remarkable archaeological work. And at Delphi, there was a massive temple to Apollo. And here's the ruins of that temple right now. This is, this is what it looks like. It's in a beautiful, almost like a movie scene, a movie set setting. And this is a massive temple. And at its center was a person, a female, that was known as the Oracle of Delphi. And the oracle of Delphi became a very important figure for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the oracle, you can think of her almost like a, a high priestess 
of a religion to Apollo. And the idea was that Apollo would select a beautiful woman and, and it was supposedly this very intimate relationship. But one of the things that marked the worship at the Oracle of Delphi is she would have these utterances, these wisdom that people would come and seek from her. Now, the historical references differ exactly how it all worked. Some of them attest that there was some type of vapor or some type of incense was being burned that it would actually put her into some type of hallucic um, trance. And she would begin with these ecstatic utterances that would just be very emotionally driven and the crowd would be into it. And then the priests that were around her, they would interpret them into kind of a meter, into a rhyme. And they'd be these wise sayings that supposedly would come out. She could predict the future, it was claimed. This became a major source of worship and a major influence in the first century. And so at the Oracle of Delphi, all of this power was gathering around it. All of this wealth was gathering around it. And it was on the same trade route as Corinth. And so you can imagine if there's this seat of, of great authority where one thing you experience is this, these utterances and this prophetic speaking, and it's all very um, emotional and revved up, that that would start to lend itself to think that must be very important. That has to be significant. And so back in Corinth, at this church, when one of the gifts is this ability to speak, perhaps in a language that you had never spoken before, or perhaps in what Paul refers to the tongues of angels, there became this idea that out of all the gifts, that's the one. That's the one that you want. That's the one that you're closest to God on. That's the one that has all the power. It has all the accolades. It has all the support. It has all the direction to it. That's the one that you want to chase. And so now there's this fighting. There's this bragging, this boasting between different people of the body of Christ in this church. And remember, the church is probably no more than 30 or 40 people at tops. And it's beginning to divide the church because people are claiming, I'm more spiritual than you. Because look at the gift that I have. And for Paul, he's not going to have any of it. And so he's going to go back and he's going to remind them of what you should actually desire. Because they're desiring this. And so there becomes this desire, well, I see the gift that you have, so I want one that's equal or I want one that's greater. He says, you're pursuing the wrong things. And so he gives us this chapter. He gives us these verses where he's writing this letter and he's addressing this issue. And so if you have your Bibles or you have our scripture journals, again, we're going to take it in three parts. And so I'll walk you through, through this. Here's the first one. And this is where he starts his talking about love. And when he uses the word love... It's the word agape. And maybe you've heard of that. There's all different kinds of love words that have love, mean love, that translates love in our world or our, our language. But they were far more finessed in the first century. 
So you wouldn't have walked around saying, I love pizza and I love my wife in the same, use the same word. But agape is one of those words that Paul uses, and it's already being used in the culture, but after he's done using the word, and after the other writers are being done use the word, it becomes almost exclusively owned by the church. Meaning, we hijack their word and brought it in, and it begins to describe the kind of love that God has for us. And so here's what Paul says. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, do you hear what Paul's saying there? I, I was so tempted to do this, but bring a clanging cymbal onto the stage here. And that way, if you started to nod off, I could just reach over and, you know, give it a, give it a whack and just bang throughout. He's saying, you're pursuing these gifts, and you think they're so impressive, but you've pursued them without love. Therefore, they're as functional and as helpful as if I reached over and banged the gong in the middle of worship. You're contributing nothing to worship. You can see the Corinthians wanting to push back. But no, Paul, no, we're, this is a spiritual activity. This is a spiritual gift. You, you said so yourself. Therefore, we must be spiritual. And Paul says, you cannot be spiritual if you lack love. So if there's a word that you, I want you to write beside these verses, I want you to write the word essential beside them. Because here's what Paul is saying, and we need to understand this. He's saying that love is essential for any spiritual activity. Love is essential for any spiritual activity. Here's what this means. It means you can go through the motions. You can go through all the right processes. You can go through all the right behaviors, but if you lack love, it is worthless like just banging a gong and clashing a cymbal together. It's just noise, and it doesn't help the music at all. Their struggle was these spiritual gifts. They were doing a spiritual exercise, and they were doing it with zero power behind it because they lacked the love. So the question for you is, what do you do that lacks love? If Paul were to rewrite this today, he would probably address some different things. You may have the right style of worship, but without love, you're just banging a cymbal. You may have all scriptures memorized, but without love, you're just clanging a gong. 
You may have the right doctrine. You may have the right position on every issue. And without love, Paul's words, you have nothing. You may be the biggest contributor at church. And without love, you have nothing. Do you see where he's going with this? We can go through all the right motions. You could have perfect church attendance and without love, it's all for naught. He's saying that. He said, I can offer my body as a sacrifice to the flames, but if I do it without love, it is nothing to my credit. I mean, he's not playing around with these words. Love is the central ingredient. If you reach in and take love out of it, it's no longer a spiritual endeavor. You think about cooking, you know. If I bake you an apple pie, but it has no apples in it, is it really an apple pie? I mean, it can be good. I mean, sugar, butter, not bad, you know. Mix it all together, but it's not an apple pie. If you're familiar with the Stephen Wright, he's a comedian that was famous for his one-liners. One of them, as I thought about this, he said, I bought powdered water the other day. I didn't know what to add. Because when you take the water out, it's not water anymore. Take the love out, it's not godly, it's not spiritual anymore. Well, Paul's not going to leave us there. He's going to help us out now. He's going to tell us what this love looks like. And so back into our verse, starting verse 4. And here's where everybody's toes get stepped on. So I just want you to think, and I'm going to ask you to resist the temptation to look at your spouse or significant other and point at them, say they need this, this is for you, so no elbows. For a moment, put yourself here. Because Paul's about to give us a really strong definition of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What I want you to do is I want you to write beside that paragraph the word choice. And I want you to see what Paul is saying. Love is patient. Love is kind. And what's interesting, when he talks about the word kind here, it's this idea of love treats things that are like our kind. 
you know, kind can be nice, but kind also means we're one of a kind. So it's kin. You see the word kin in there as well? It's like we're family. Love responds like family. It doesn't envy. It does not boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. This is where when I try to put myself in the scripture, I get really uncomfortable because I become suddenly aware of all the times that I'm arrogant, that I'm rude, that I'm boastful. I'm not kind. I'm not patient. And if that doesn't get you by then, the next line should get you all. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I, if you can make it all the way out of this passage without being scathed in any which way, please send me an email. Because I want what you have. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And here's how I know that this is such a powerful passage. Because you may not want to live this out, but you would love to live in a world where everybody else around you did, right? You, you would be happy if everybody in your family, your children, your spouse, what, whatever your household arrangement is, you'd be happy if they all adopted this 100%, right? You get to be you, but let's all follow the rules on uh, 1 Corinthians 13. That's what makes this so powerful. It's because intuitive we know. We know that this is the absolute best way to go about being a human, isn't it? About being a person. And you would be drawn to somebody else that exemplified this. And what amazes me most about this is Paul doesn't say, love is a warm puppy. Love is butterflies in your stomach. Love is tingly feeling down your spine. Love is sweet. See, we've got love as an emotion, don't we? But God's definition of love is not an emotion. It's an action. So... Understand this, love is an intentional decision, not an emotional feeling. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he shares the Passover one more time with his disciples. He gathers these men that have lived with him for three years. They've seen him walk and talk and preach and share and heal. He has shared his life with them and he gathers and he drops a huge announcement on them. And he says, I'm giving you one more commandment. Actually, I'm giving you a commandment that replaces all the other commandments. And their mouths kind of drop open like, what? He says, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. He does not say, feel feelings toward one another. Feel likable to one another. 
He, does, he never commands an emotion, but he does command an action. Love is a verb. It is a behavior, and you intentionally choose it. It is the only way possible for Jesus to say, love your enemies, and we actually fulfill that. He does not mean have warm fuzzies towards your enemies. He means you respond to whatever comes at you completely differently than the world teaches you to respond. With patience and grace, and humility. We don't feel love. We choose love. That's what Paul is calling us to in this scripture. And and there's some that just say, well, you know, I'm just a hard-headed person. Paul would say, not anymore, you're not. Well, I'm just rough around the edges. Paul would say, not an excuse. Well, I've always been cantankerous. Paul says, so what? Because now you're alive in Jesus. And the stakes have changed. He says, so now, it's not how you feel towards one another. It's about how you act towards one another. And what's so powerful about this, and, and, and this, this applies uniquely into marriage as well, or not uniquely, but in marriage in a very specific way, but it's not limited to marriage, but all of us, is you can live this scripture out regardless of how anybody else around you lives it out. Do you understand that? Paul does not say love is kind when you're in a context of kind. Love is patient when those around you are patient with you. Love never is irritable as long as everybody else has also had their coffee. But he's saying, no, no, no. You want to be a person of love, it comes this way, and you live this way, you choose this way, because you have chosen to follow Jesus, and it is a choice that you make, and you make it every single day, regardless of the choice made by those closest to you. We do not fight fire with fire inside the kingdom of God. We fight with love. And the list and the description and the definition that Paul offers up here. Love one another as I have loved you are the words of Jesus, and those are the marching orders. What Paul is doing is he's simply providing commentary for what that looks like. Then the last part. Verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. What I want you to do is I want you to write the word maturity next to this passage. And then I want you to go in and I want you to underline verse 11. Verse 11 says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Remember, this is all because in the church at Corinth, they are bragging about who's got the best gift. They're, they're trying to overtake one another with their gift. And Paul looks at them and says, Grow up. Get over it. Now, I know I'm in a room full of parents that have never had to utter those words. But just imagine for some of us that have. Have you ever noticed how kids can fight over a gift? That's what's going on in this church. They're fighting over a gift. It's not even theirs. They didn't create it. They didn't cultivate it. They didn't earn it. It's a gift from God and they're going to fight over it. And Paul looks right at him and says, you got to grow up in this. There's no place for this in the church. Can you imagine sitting in that church on the day that they read this letter aloud? And this isn't the first time he's really kind of taken it right to them. So by this time, I, I just wonder, who's left in the room? Who's still hearing this? Because you really expect your missionary, your pastor to send you really nice letters, right? And Paul says, you're acting like a baby. You're like a child. And when we fail to display love to one another and love to the world around us, we're just a bunch of babies. And is it any wonder at that moment when a world that is hurting desperately for something they can believe in and trust and have confidence in and find hope in, they look at that and go, I don't have time for that. It matters. Because our witness is on the line. So I think Paul would want us to understand this. That it's love. That's the metric. It's love. That's the mark of spiritual maturity. Increasing in love means you're growing spiritually. Your capacity for love should be growing. Your capacity to live in such a way, to live out the verses of 4 through 7 in such a way, there's the mark of spiritual maturity. I have known people that have been in church all their lives and have not increased their capacity to love. And remember, Paul would say, well, that's nothing then. Our capacity, for our, our spiritual maturity is not marked by Bible memorization. I'm for it. It's wonderful. Our 
spiritual maturity is not marked by church attendance. I'm for it. But it doesn't, it's not the sign of maturity. Your spiritual maturity is not marked by your ability to have avoided all the really bad sins that are really public. And your resume at least appears clean. But without love, it's not spiritual maturity. And so Paul is looking at his church saying, you got to grow up in this. He goes, you're bragging about how mature you are and you're just a baby. He says, put forth love and see what happens. And here's why that this is the mark of spiritual maturity. Because what Paul is saying here is, the more you put four through seven in place, the more and more you look like Jesus. So the very last thing that I would tell you is this. Love is a person. And that person is Jesus. Because look at 4 through 7 once again, but now imagine what Jesus is experiencing on the cross. Let me walk you back through it. Love is patient and kind. Jesus is being nailed down on the cross. And at that very moment when he could have, as the song says, he could have called 10,000 angels. He held back and restrained that and was patient in the midst of that at the moment of the worst violation being done to him. Love does not envy or boast. He's a king. And he did not claim kingship the way that we think a king should claim the throne. He didn't boast about it. Didn't claim it. Didn't take it for his own. He's not arrogant. He's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. Just a night before, Jesus had been in a garden knowing the cross was coming. And he weeps and prays to God, his heavenly Father, and says, if there's any other way, let's go with that, but not my will, but yours. I'm not going to insist on something being my way. And he submits to the will and the mission of God. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Time and time again, Jesus encounters evil. And he never delights in it, yet he always was quick to rejoice with those that found the truth. And it happened again and again and again as he encountered the people that were most unlike him as they fell in love with him. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And in that moment on the cross, and we're going to talk about this next week at Easter, and I'm so excited to preach at Easter this, this year. 
But in that moment, he's bearing all things. And in that unimaginable weight, he's bearing my sin. He's bearing your sin. And so what Paul is saying is in the more you come to understand what Jesus has done for you, the more that love is naturally going to become your marker. It is impossible to live this way outside of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. That this is not something where you're going to try on your own power to gird it up, grit it out, and force through. It does not work. But you, every single day, come to love and understand what Jesus did for you. It will transform you. Because you become become aware of how much you need the saving grace of Jesus. And your patience with somebody else will go through the roof. Because you begin to replace your irritability with gratitude that Jesus has done this for me. This is the only way this works. So Paul ends with this verse. Ends this way. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let me pray for you. Father, it's tough preaching something that I know that I do not live out. So I pray for myself and anybody else that would consider themselves in my predicament. I've seen what you're calling me to, realize, and then I fall short. So, Father, I'm going to ask that you would help each of us to fall in love with Jesus over and over again. Allowing what he has done for us, the victory that he has claimed for us, the weight that he bared for us, the cross that he endured for us. Let that be the power and the motivation with which we live this out. Father, may, may Western Hills and all of those that are hearing this message May we become the embodiment of 1 Corinthians 4 through 7. When somebody describes Western Hills that's from the outside, may they describe with these words they're patient, they're kind, they're not arrogant, they don't boast, they bear all things, they know how to love. Not because we're so special, Father, because you're so good to us. Not because somehow we found you, but because you found us. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. Father, I pray for each person that would love to live this out and to be a reality in their lives. That you would use your Holy Spirit to power that. That relationships can become different because we actually live this out, Father, that marriages would become different because we actually live this out, that parent-child relationships would be different, neighbors would be different because we live this out, Father, that this would be the body of Christ at work. I ask all this in the name of Jesus, the one who is love 
and is the final word on love for us. In his name we pray, amen.